0: Hi, I'm Ridley Scott, I'm about to talk about American Gangster. So if you stay with me, you can listen to how the film got made for the next two and a half hours.
1: I'm Steve Zalian, screenwriter of American Gangster. One of the many things that amazes me about Ridley is his workmanlike approach to everything. Nothing phases him. It's like he's going to work and doing a job I get the feeling that he's most comfortable when he's working, when he's actually shooting, and maybe when he isn't, is sort of anxious and doesn't exactly know what to do with himself. I mean, for me, directing is a real chore for him. I just think that it's, 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 he loves it so much that it's just, you know, I think it puts him at
0: peace. The beginning of the film wasn't the design beginning. When you run the film right through to the end and go beyond the titles, the very last image is a man walking, a silhouette figure walking into a restaurant, and shooting, we put it at the very end of the movie, and then we inserted this moment of violence, which is, of course, the paradox of what he's talking about. And it was so real, and everybody was so shocked by it. I wasn't that shocked by it, really, but everyone was so sh- shocked by the image that it eventually got attached to the front, and I thought, well, let's leave it be, because it sets up the pace. I don't mean in speed, the tone. It sets up the tone of the movie. This is what it's going to be. There's nothing romantic about this movie the movie has a very strong reality quality of the late 60s early 70s i was in new york in the late 60s early 70s so all the experts who were kind of 35 years old telling me this is how it was i actually had to say listen stop i was there i was in harlem i knew exactly how they dressed i took a lot of black and white photographs so this was my kind of tramping ground and so i knew it well as well as you know in at that time Harlem wasn't really the war zone it became. In fact, I walked around there no problems whatsoever. In those days, even out of the sixties, you know, it was a period of kind of semi sixties was an era of we believed to be affluent, was it? I don't remember because I just worked. I, I don't remember was working my ass off right through this, the whole sixties. So I didn't really experience the swinging sixty. I just remember working hard. But I only remember people would dress in that manner if you went to a nightclub, you wouldn't see it on the street. And therefore I, was, I paid a lot of attention, as Janti Yates did as well, to the wardrobe. And which, because you know, we are in, not in sets, we're on streets and we're in environments which all have to be created. But the, because you've got one continual thing that's gonna be right there in front of you at all times, that's the wardrobe. Therefore, the wardrobe, the, the costume on the actors were very carefully considered and were very reserved, weren't as flash as people thought they might be. Hence the scene with the brother, Chiu-Tao, where he says, what do you got on there? What do you call that? He says, I know it's a very, very, very This suit says, come here and arrest me. That, that was the whole point of that scene, the scene because the Bumpy Johnson character was a very discreet dresser and insisted on discretion, which is why he was so successful for so long. Uh, Nick Pelleggi
1: came to me. Nick, of course, is uh, the writer of uh, Casino and Goodfellas and um, was a crime reporter back in the 70s. And he knew Frank Lucas. Uh, I think he covered his trial. And uh, he came to me and asked me if I'd like to meet Frank and uh, consider writing a script based on his life. So I did. Um, so Nick and I got together with Frank Lucas, uh, the Regency Hotel in New York. Spent a few days with him, during which he talked about his life, and, uh, during the course of those conversations with him, he mentioned, um, Richie Roberts. I was not really aware of Richie Roberts until then, and, um, he was the cop who ended up arresting Frank, and, um... So I got together with him. I thought it'd be good to get together with with Richie too. Uh, So we invited him to the Regency Hotel and the four of us sat around at that point and uh, Richie was able to talk about both his own story and Frank's from his point of view. And it was during those conversations that I started to think that maybe this was two stories, parallel stories, Frank Lucas and Richie Roberts. I did about 50 hours of interviews with the two of them. Um, I got together again with Richie in Los Angeles for another few days, and um, you know, it it, it was difficult because I had two separate points of view, two very separate stories, really, with characters who don't even, uh, you know, come together in a scene until towards the end of the story. Um, Their their lives cross, but they're never in the same room together until towards the end of the film, and uh, um, you know, so that that, that was tricky. Um, I uh, I found after agonizing over it for many months that uh, it, it might be a good idea to try to write in a sense two scripts. Um, one from Frank's point of view and the other from Richie's, and to, and to then kind of Correlate
0: them and um, and put them together.
1: I'm sure didn't anything to you, but he made
0: me promise. Steve Zeldin to me is one of the best writers in the business, and best one of I think he may be at at times the best writer in the business. And I'd hung on to this uh, memory of this particular screenplay from almost four years pre Kingdom of Heaven. I was reading it, he asked me to read it, to look at it, and I knew Steve was gonna be a, a producer on this particular one. So I'd read it then, at 165 pages. And it fundamentally, stayed with me through two movies, and I gradually realized it hadn't been made. So, cut a long story short, I called him Mr. Grazer, Brian, who is kind of a friend of mine. Uh, he's an even bigger friend now, I mean, so that was a good sign, making a movie that we're still friends. Um, but I said to him, what happened? And he said, well, and he gave me the story, And that there'd been two attempts, and there'd been a bill run up, and um, it hadn't happened, and it was reclining on a shelf. And so I said, well, I think, you know, I'd love to do this, and you want to do it. And so we then got, I just finished working with Russell. We got together working with Russell. Denzel was a little wary, because he said, we've been here once, is this really going to happen? And I met with him, and we talked at length, and gradually, bit by bit, we got into a position of being able to remake it. That was the preamble to all of this a lot of that stuff I was working off 165 page screenplay which I had to get to Steve and said look we've got to get down With Steve you know we got down to about hundred about 20 25 pages out a lot of this stuff was in there what I loved was the density and people had got panicked by it and had started to edit it out you know in in screenplay form and I said no 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 you can't do that this is on paper I always trust if I can get something on the script on paper, and I like it. I, uh, and a lot of the time I will spend quite a lot of time with the writer, so I'm really li- beginning to live and breathe it. Once it's down, I turn to, that's my blueprint. That's the blueprint for the building I'm going to build, and I stick with it, and I trust what went into the document. A lot of people don't. They get in, they lose confidence, and suddenly you're in disarray, and you're suddenly rewriting things. things like I do not like to do that.
1: First draft was probably about 160, 70 pages. Uh, took 18 months to write. Uh, final draft was probably about 135 pages, which is still long for a script. And there were 350 scenes, um, which is a lot for a film. A lot of the scenes are very short, but they're, they still have to be shot. <laughs> And Ridley did a great job in terms of um, sort of approaching every little one-eighth page scene as if it was the most important thing in the script, and and um, shot shot every scene I think beautifully.
0: This is not my kind of film. I mean, you know, the sense of American gangster kind of movie, you know, um, French Connection kind of mixed with The Godfather. That's, that was the target, and there's a bit of French Connection we're watching right here now, um, and. I, it's not kind of the thing I would normally pursue, but I would pursue any good piece of writing. And Steve's, this got me because of the writing. And also, you know, like anything, once you climb into it, or I do anyway, once I'm climbing into it, I can smell it. Um, that's how I, I evolve. I, I always evolve. That's my evolution. And that, there is a very specific evolution. And that's why when I, I have to do all my own location hunting with the art production designer, um, and see everything uh, because what I'm doing by doing that, I'm re educating myself. It's all an educational process leading to the time that when I'll shoot. Once I shoot, I'm very fast, like to take Charlie and we're in and out and um, we go off quickly. There was something like 360, there's 135 speaking parts in this film, which is enormous. Normally, when there's 35 speaking parts, you know, important to me, there's 135, and there's 360 locations. So that sounds to be almost impossible in, two hours and, seven, in you know, and, and 27 minutes, but you sh- I shoehorn them in somehow. The script was full of it. Um, and, and there was a bit of, because you get good actors, uh, there's always a certain amount of movement, a certain amount of, ad-libbing is a bad word for me. It's not ad-libbed, it's worked out beforehand. Ad-libbing usually end up cutting out and ends up on the studio floor, on the, you know, the editing room floor. But um, I think the cast in this was also, uh, I hadn't worked with this casting director before, and I love her Avi Kaufman. And so I, I wanted to keep everything so street. And because I'm, I don't live in New York and I'm not familiar with this world and this arena, I spent quite a lot of time with A.V. Casting. But again, it's an educational process. I'm learning I'm learning who's who and who's what, because half these parts are, two thirds of these parts are, are three line, two line characters. And, you know, who's it said that once? I said, Scorsese, I think, said some words to the effect that, um, you know, if you don't pay attention on every person in that scene, on the day, the whole problem will become about the person you didn't pay attention to on you know when you were casting them. And you'll agonise with this weakness in the scene. And so you'll have the star standing there, you'll have two or three other actors who are significant actors all standing there, and why this poor... Little Sod actually tries to get his line right. You must pay attention to everybody. Uh, damn it, man! Did we ask for this? Did we put a gun someone's head and say, give us your money? Richie Roberts is a paragon of morality uh, in the sense that he was famous and then infamous for giving back a million dollars. That's a fact. You see, what you see there is what happened. He gave back the money so he could no longer be trusted. And so John Ortiz, his character, his, his buddy, kind of blames it. Addiction, addicts tend to always find something to blame. If you're not an addict, you find, you don't look for that, you know. So it's, it's part of the the soul of the addict, I think, is that they need to the blame. They need to blame something as to the reason why they're doing something, right? Um, and Richie just had a private life which was immature. So it, I think it's pretty well represented here. and. Um, Richie Roberts himself saw the film with me last week at the Museum of Modern Art. I ran it for MoMA in uh, New York, and um, there's a very big, posh crowd there, including Puff Daddy and including Jay-Z, you know. And um, it was... Um, he he was, had never seen it. And so what was really nice, he was absolutely, um, as they say they're blown away. You know, because so often films are made about people in you and the film's not very good, you know, it's not very accurate. He couldn't believe it. He said, I'm going to become an actor. I said, you should, you should. <laughs>
1: what? This happened to Richie. Uh, he found a million dollars in the trunk of a car and turned it in, and it was sort of the beginning of the end of his career as a policeman. Um, that stuck with me. I mean, that became, you know, I guess the most important element in his story. On the one hand, you had a... You know, a gangster who, in his world, played by the rules and was quite ethical. Uh, in in Richie's world, you know, being ethical uh, was dangerous. And um, I just thought it was interesting that the sort of the most dangerous thing you can do as a, a cop back in those days was to turn in money um, that no one else would ever trust you, no other cops would trust you. And. Uh, that um, that really kind of defined his, uh, you know, the world he was living in. I mean, there was the the there 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 was quite a lot of attention, um, you know, on the New York Police um, back in the early '70s. There was, of course, the Serpico, the, uh, the Serpico case, and. Uh, the, uh, what do you call it, the um, Special Investigations Unit, which was a crime unit in New York, in New York City. Had a lot of indictments for corruption. Uh, the Knapp con- Commission was investigating the police in New York. It was quite prevalent and, and quite well-known, and um, it's a piece of history. Um, it's, this, this happened, what, 35 years ago.
0: Steve was very well researched, then i met office. This is, uh, this is the fourth for me and Steve. Oh, this, uh, Steve's done four things for me. Um, so Steve, I know, is always tremendously well researched. So we talked for hours. Then <clears throat> any doubts, I've got Nick Peleggi, <clears throat> who um, talked to him about that. And then finally I said, i got to meet Frank. So Frank Lucas comes in. I sit for, I thought it was going to be 20 minutes with Frank. I was there for five hours on the first meeting. And uh, I just talked to him about everything. Saying, were you ever afraid? Why? Why would I be afraid? Were you ever intimidated by what you were doing? Why would I be intimidated? So, at that moment I started realised that Frank was a kind of rather special kind of person. In the sense of... I would describe him... I guess the good word might be sociopath. There is no remorse, there's nothing. And uh, that's his business, and that's who he is. and. Uh, that's he, would, he wouldn't even know what I was talking about if I was talking about remorse and guilt and all that stuff. He didn't care. Um, and so he was very interested, he would tell me exactly how he got a passport, how he'd really mix it, how he came across the name Blue Magic, um, what it was like to fly into Cambodia at the time of a world war. Was he concerned about that? Absolutely not, I didn't give him a second thought. And remember that Frank was, ha- comes out of his own jungle. He says, are you kidding me? I'm on a jungle here. It's more dangerous to me walking through the undergrowth in Cambodia. And, and don't forget, Frank purported to have been an executioner for Bumpy Johnson. Now I'm not going to say the figures because it varied so tremendously that it sounds gratuitous. But he was definitely, he'd definitely been there, seen it and done it. So those are collapsible needles, of I faked it, that's not real. But you get the, the really, um, the ratty old needles because the drug addicts can't afford the proper... You know, you don't, ironically, you don't die of heroin itself. You die of hepatitis, overdosing, dirty needles, sharing needles, now you die of AIDS. Um, the, the heroin itself, if you had a lot of money and you had a nurse to look after you and maintain you and you, you could live by taking heroin like a jolly good cigar, um, I don't recommend it. Uh, um, but you don't die of, you'd have clean needles, it would be all laid out and you'd limit what you'd take and you would become a, a real addict. Oh, you could become a terrifying addict and what happens is, I think poverty kicks in, you haven't got any money, suddenly, suddenly you're living in some dreadful place, then you're using reusable needles and then you're using sharing needles and then you stop one day and then you go back and take the cement you took before foolishly and you, overde- you, you OD. This cafe we built, I couldn't find, this is all set, this is a set. And just the the cafe itself, not the street, of course. But I found that Harlem was disappearing in the way that I remembered it. And, you know, the average brownstone now that would have been a slum 15 years ago, 10 years ago, is now a four, five million dollar townhouse. And therefore, I'm actually, you know, everything that the evolution into the affluent Harlem now, because Bill Clinton's got an office up there. So I suddenly found it hard, so I found the biggest intersection I could find, which still had the remains of some of the big old brownstones that were in need of repair. And I chose a, a, a little shop that was absolutely destroyed. There was no one in it, and we stuck the set in it, so I'd be right on the intersection because I wanted it to be very public. And Harlem is not a funny little village. It's a lot of big, broad avenues. It's really strange. So what you see when you see these wide streets, that's typically Harlem. You know, at one stage, I always thought there would be narrow streets you know, like Soho, charming little district which had gone to rack and ruin with poverty and crime. It's not like that at all. It's not a big, late 19th century, rather grand architecture because you're up near Columbia University, and you know that section of Manhattan at one stage was kind of rather grand, had been built in a rather grand manner, whether they're apartments or houses. And they're also flanked by the park, so you've got the tip of the park up there as well. So it's a strange combination of being potentially beautiful at the same time just got tremendously run down. So that, that all that was a set.
1: Well, I, I had all the facts. I mean, I had too many facts. I had basically interviews with Frank that stretched back to his, you know, days growing up in North Carolina through his moving to New York, beginning to work with Bumpy Johnson, uh, his life as a as you know this this top heroin dealer in the late 60s and early 70s and then on into the 70s and 80s so you know really I had too much information the trick was to with any story that deals with somebody's life is to figure out which part of his life is 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 the most interesting or the shortest amount of time in a person's life that you can you know really convey their story so I started what I felt was as late as I could in the story, which was the death of Bumpy Johnson and Frank's, sort of the beginning of his rags to riches story, and uh, ended it as early as I could, which was with his arrest. I've worked with Ridley a couple times before, uh, so when we talked about directors, he came up right away, and um, I was very excited with the idea that he might do it. This was back in I don't know 2002, 2003, and at that time he read the script and couldn't do it um, for various reasons, both uh, you know because of what other things he was doing. Then a couple years later we went back to him, <laughs> and uh, the timing was right. He reread the script, and um, from you know from that moment on things moved very quickly uh, in terms of the pre-production. And, uh, and the shooting and the post-production. It was, all, it was all about as quick as you can make a movie. It had a kind of a vibrancy and a sort of a, um, I don't know, kind of an energy that you can see in the way he films this movie that uh, was kind of the same as the process of making it. It happened very quickly. What Ridley brings to it is a, is, an, is a kind of an approach to every scene that has an idea filmically to it, and um, you know. So when I look at the film, I, I, I it's hard for me to even remember what I was thinking in terms of how I thought it should look because it's been replaced by what Ridley's done. Um, but uh, you know, you can count on him to you know shoot a scene in a way that's just um, uh, somehow, I don't know. Somehow captures the the intent, and um, he's he's a great filmmaker.
0: Cops will try and upgrade the the best of the best. Will try and change their status in life by becoming taking the bar exam, where you can either become prosecutor or defense. And the irony is, when you get your bar exam, if you're a first class cop, I mean first class being on the pay level, I think this first, second, third class level, which is each different pay brackets. As you say, you earn $3,000 less as a lawyer, which was always the reason why in one version of the script that his wife literally simply walked out, she said, you've been leading a double life as a cop, you've been working at night, we have no family life whatsoever, to become a guy who's gonna earn $3,000 less? He says, yeah, she just said that was the final straw. She walked out. That was quite common, but I think, I decided in this, not really to, and the best ones don't really do that, not to explain everything, just do it as it is and you either believe it or you don't. And believe me, this is all real. You couldn't take a 100% horse, you'd have to take a grain, right? If you took um, a, a normal injection of absolute pure horse, you'd die, your you know, heart stop. stop. Um, so the uh the it's how far you cut it back and many much of this heroin was cut back much more than that in manhattan so it was a very very watered down version and because of its unevenness that's how people OD because they'll find out a real addict will get his have his ear at the ground and hear that somebody there's been some ods he'll go straight for that area to find out who was selling it because he knows it's pure so he'll go for the pure he wants the cake, and he, if he's smart he'll he'll try a little bit to see how good it was he'll know immediately that body, your body's like a barometer you know of purity or less pure he simply said i'm going to go straight to where pure where it's pure i'm going to cut out the middleman. get rid of the middleman." his big speech in harlem when he comes back and brings the brothers the all the nephews and nieces up from north carolina he says, We're gonna, I've removed the middleman. That's a very simple move, but it's a big move. So now I've got 100% horse heroin, and I'll cut it down because if it's at 100%, it'll kill you. So you cut it down to 5%, I think it's 5% real, and then the rest is lactose. And it's chopped up and mixed, and di- it essentially is diluted to protect the customer.
1: so he did something that no one else had ever done before which was to go to the source and that meant you know <laughs> going up into the jungle and dealing with the uh, the growers and the and the and the asian gangsters there the mafia didn't do that he did that and because of that he was able to produce a product that was that was better than anybody else's and he was able to sell it for less than anybody else's and still make a bigger profit than them. All because he brought the stuff in himself. He didn't have to pay off, you know,
0: people in the middle. Again, the reality, you know, the danger is that the thing slipped sideways into becoming a film about drug lords and drug barons and I know there's a reality to these farms. They're just farms. These guys are just farmers. They grow poppies because it's the best thing to crop to grow. They can get more for a ton of poppy seeds, a poppy, what do you call them, the bud, um, or the 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 byproduct of the of the of the head of the of the bud. The bud, right? Um, you can more than any a ton of rice. So it doesn't make any sense until the government pay these farmers. It's actually, the equivalent, they won't stop growing heroin, they won't stop growing the poppy. Why should they? They don't necessarily take it, but they sell it. He was making a million a day in the late 60s, early 70s. So that's serious money on any, anyone's level uh, at that particular time. I mean, it's serious money on today's money, but uh, in those days it's shocking shocking it's a very simple form of capitalism and capitalism's capitalistic structure when he as it, as we discovered in the film the we underestimated what they found in boxes but we reckon about modestly 275 million dollars in boxes now 275 million in 1974 you could have bought half more you could have bought maybe you know all the way down to 100th street I mean, it was, you know, you'd get one of these townhouses in those days for, like,
1: $100,000. One of the things that's interesting is that, you know, you have these gangsters, this criminal world where there is a certain, um, a certain code that they have, certainly Frank had, and, uh, and then you have the, you know, the official world, the... You know, the world of sort of law and order and the military which were complicit in his, in his business. I don't think Frank Lucas could exist without that. So, you know, he was able to buy off the cops. He was able to buy off the military guys that he had to, to bring his dope in from Southeast Asia. And, um, you know, he paid his bills (laughs) and, um, that's, uh, Without that, I don't think he would have been able to stay in business. What he didn't count on was that one honest cop would <laughs> would make it his mission in life to catch him. Um, you know, so if Richie was dangerous for as far as other cops were concerned, he was dangerous as far as Frank Lucas was concerned too.
0: I called Tony up saying, "Listen, um, I'm going to go in on this. I think I want to do this thing, man, gangster." The obvious choice is Denzel, obviously. Um, no is what do you think? So Tony can give me the lowdown, saying, well, I know he was really up for it. He wanted to... Um, he was very disappointed when it didn't happen. And it didn't happen for... Reasons that I can't even go into, because I, I don't know what why it didn't happen. Twice it didn't happen. I think somewhere in there, someone wasn't being assertive enough or making decisions, and the budget was galloping, right? And uh, something like this can easily run out of control. And um, so I... Off that, and how is he? Because I hadn't really met it. I'd met him once socially, actually, and um, I just called him up. And that was it. Just go from there.
1: Where are you, Jay? That's the problem. Richie had a lot of adventures when he was an undercover cop. Uh, a lot of things happened to him. Uh, Well, there's these, there's these great little connections. I mean, you talk about Truppo who connects them, both Frank and and Richie. I mean, he does directly because he's in scenes with both of them. Javier here is uh, also a connection. I mean, he's, he's a casualty of Frank's dope. And uh, so even though Richie doesn't know it, there's that connection. There's this connection. This scene takes place in the the same projects that that the uh, finale will take place in.
0: So he's been here before. I'm about to work for the fifth time with Russell. I'm working with him right now with Leonardo DiCaprio, where he's put on thirty pounds for me. He's two hundred um, and fifty pounds, and you learn each other's moves, you know, you learn. So eventually the waltz, the preamble gets ditched and because you don't need to do that. And uh, mm-hmm. you can get right to the heart of the matter almost immediately, which means that you can actually be frank about this and frank about that, saying, look, I don't think this, I don't think that. Well, I do, and so you can actually have a real exchange of uh, ideas as to where you go next, okay? I know exactly what he can do, and he, I mean, he constantly surprises me. Denzel constantly surprised me. And I think it was because there was no... In this particular... I think I was the biggest fan of the script as well, of the three of us. Um, but actors always have their opinions about writers and you know, what they want what they need, as opposed to what I need as a director, what Russell needs as an actor, what Denzel needs as an actor, are all kind of slightly different things. I like frugal, intelligent frugality um because it leaves me room to function because I'll always stretch with with what I do what I do with my eye which still keeps going um is not really discussable or describable because half the time I'm not sure what I'll do yet until I actually get there but once I get there once I've seen all the locations and smelt all the wardrobe and smelt the paint inside the rooms and cast the people, so I can literally, I've got the universe in my head. I'm, even as I'm driving in that morning, I'm knowing exactly what I'm gonna do. Right through the whole thing, the whole organic structure of the scene will be all laid out in my head. And then, and that's how it, that's how it works. Um, whereas, you know, actors sometimes want to be, have to, they do, it's different to what I have to do. Because they're essentially on their own in relation to whoever they may be in the scene. And they, of course, then have to learn the words. So if the words aren't learned or the words aren't absolutely tied down, they want to adjust them, then that has to come together with the other person who's aware that they are going to be adjusted. So, uh, and frequently a structured film like this doesn't have time for rehearsal. You People are always shocked about how little rehearsal I do. And I like to, Russell likes to rehearse, Denzel less, once they know that, I think they got a sense, I would always arrive knowing exactly what I wanted to do. So I'd say, I thought this, 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 silence, okay, you want to walk it? Why not? Walk it, we walk it, I say, you want to shoot it? They say, okay, so now we're going to shoot it. That's it. And uh, so it defines all logic about film schools and acting schools and all that stuff. I think what finally comes down to these two arrive here incredibly experienced. Russell is a f- 35, 37 movie overnight success. 37 movies in 32 years in the theater, overnight success, right? So there's a serious amount of experience in there. Denzel is exactly the same um, kind of weight. And I'm um, 2000, 3000 commercials and 40 years in the business. And 20, this is my nineteenth feature firm, overnight success. And everything that you did just prior to this is not as important as what you're about to do today. That's, that's what thing you, must, you have to remember. That probably is the most significant thing I've said on the tape. Um, everything you've done before is no longer relevant. It's what you get when you get there. What is relevant is your, what you're carrying with you, which is your experience. Your experience will give you that probable confidence to push something, say it this way, that way, or recognize it when it's happening and then agree. He's actually testing for purity. And by dropping in a combination of two liquids, you can see whether the liquid goes blue or stays as it is. When it changes colour quickly, that shows how pure it is. And that's all it is. But actually, if you're doing that in a laboratory, it would take longer. So that scene, in a funny kind of way, is fundamentally symbolic of what happens. But he's talking about no additives. This is the purest I've ever seen. I always said this guy was kind of a dropout from Yale, who had probably been reading... I don't know what the big school in chemistry would be in the United States, but let's say he was a dropout. He looks to me like Ivy League. And uh, so he's a small part who worked out beautifully.
1: Well, as I understand it, Frank was bringing in 100% pure heroin and then cutting it down to something like, I don't know, 5 or 10% and selling actually selling that on the street. The connections from Turkey, the normal heroin connection, like the French connection, you know, would come in already diluted. So the uh, distributors in, in the United States would never have their hands on 100% pure heroin. You know, let's say it was 50%, so they would start whacking it up from, from, from that already whacked up percentage and, you know, end up with 1%, 2%, 3%. And that's what they would be selling on the streets. Frank, having, having the pure stuff to begin with, didn't have to go that far to make just as much money. Great casting in this movie. I mean, everybody from the, from the lead parts to every extra. Yeah. I think that Ridley, you know, just a, a sequence like this. <laughs> I mean, look at these shots. I mean, every thing you see here is a separate setup and it's, uh, you know, these things take time. I mean, how how he was able to shoot 350 scenes in, I don't know what it was, 70, 80 days, I, I still don't, I still can't believe. But he's so adept with the camera and he so knows what he wants that he can, I guess, go in there and just shoot it once, shoot it twice, uh, move on, he's got it. There was a time when, you know, for budget reasons, I was being asked to Cut this thing down. Get rid of some of these little sequences. These things take time. Are they really adding enough to the story? That doesn't, these things don't have our lead actors in them. And uh, thankfully, Ridley was very careful not to, not to uh, take those things out or, or not to shoot them in a way that would end up having them cut out. I mean, he, he approached everything as if it was the most important thing in the film every little scene
0: i was trained as a designer which which i think is where the eye comes from basically but fundamentally i always choose my locations then long discussions with me and arthur arthur max is now i always work with arthur now, really then once i once i've done that then i can turn him loose and he goes and he'll only email in saying I've got this, what do you you want? you want that or that? And I'll choose immediately which one. Speed, speed, speed. It's all about speed. He needs fast decisions at this juncture, you see. He's now ahead of me right now in Morocco. I join him on Thursday. I'll shoot Sunday. I'm four weeks into a movie now. And um, it's all about making decisions. I think it's, again, it's an experience. am so precise. I can almost verbalize exactly what it should be before. So he narrows it down as having immense number of... of, of, um, you know, variations. It's narrowed down to two or three immediately. Yeah. So I just got the impression at the end of the day, Harris was either trying to avoid me, or actually he didn't like to travel. You know, were you doing it? And I said, Morocco. Oh no. Were you doing? It? Oh, so oh no, no, I don't know. And then uh, I said, right, I'm going to get him for this. So I cornered him, saying, uh, in, in well in advance, saying, I'm thinking of doing this. Go meet me in Manhattan. I'm going to send you the script, and. Um, you know, let's make a movie. And so I, I got him up way in advance and uh, he, I think he enjoyed it. and So we decided to make this film. So when you see this graded, it's absolutely beautiful. We just shot it and graded it. We didn't digitally do anything. If you want to fiddle and be a computer nerd, do it. He said, but you sure you want that? And I said, no. He said, you you like film, don't you? I said, I love film. He said, me too. He said, okay. He said, you know, I feel it's still in its infancy, and so there's a lot of corrective. There's a lot of cor- There's a lot of corrective um, stuff still going on. I think, so you can't see it here, but when you see the print, you'll see. Um, w- all he did finally do what is laboratory now calls the Oz thing. It's a treatment of where they, the, developing, print has a little bit longer in the bath, so it gets, gains a bit more silver. And that's a very great simplification of what happens, but fundamentally you put in a huge amount of information into the blacks. So it means you can crush it even more and then you get still more information in the blacks. And also it gives you more separation in terms of contrast. Your contrast ratio is even higher, so you can crush and then increase the contrast and crush and keep the contrast. It's beautiful. This bears no relationship with what the film looks like. Harris, said, what do you want? And I said, well, we started looking at a lot of still photographs. And so because the stock today is so fast that I like to light as little as possible, particularly when I choose locations, I'll choose them by the doors. And then, and then so there's, there's filling rather than lighting, right, if necessary. But for the most part, it's keep it really simple and working like a still photographer. Harrison jammed on a lot of filters to reduce the NDs, to reduce the stock to make it more wide open, which gives you that shallower depth of field, which makes it look more like a still photograph. We had so many scenes and I was a working mill, you always three cameras at once, so that at first, he didn't like that, and then I think he started to get with it. He's, Harris is a one-camera guy, and I'm anything from 11 to five to eleven cameras going, which drove him crazy initially. But I think he started to enjoy the pace we were moving. That's what really got him. He really liked the fact we move quick. And he, he comes with such a, a um, reputation that I don't even question. Trust, trust, trust. It's like with English, John Matheson, trust, you trust him. You, you ask for the world and you trust him. Yeah, I mean, he, I think that I always get the impression sometimes Tony and I, um, because we are so, um, you know, close to, the way the film we want the film to look that we are constantly with our eyes to the viewfinder maybe more than the you know the other kinds of directors and sometimes I think it does put people off uh, I, I don't know who but you know cameramen who are very serious cameramen who take themselves very seriously um, might not want to um, work with us because we get our eyes to the viewfinder I was an operator for my first four minutes. I mean, I operated all my commercials. I entirely operated anything. The doers. And I wasn't allowed to do Blade Runner, but I was breathing down the operator's necks on Blade Runner. All of um, legend and, yeah, but, but um, because of that knowledge, you're constantly, you know, in a good way, challenging a top cameraman who actually normally doesn't have to worry about that. Or he quietly works it out for himself. And either they like that competition or not. That's what I do. That's my job. That's my job. No one is allowed to sleep. A spherical lens fundamentally has less glass than a Panavision lens. And therefore it's purer, it's sharper, it's crisper. There are fewer things to go wrong. You try to work with a Panavision which has got enough squishes and squashes and glass layers on it to spread it and then contract it right it's you you got more glass you're going through more glass so that's why the, if you do compare one against the other um one is marginally now today there's some bloody good panavision lenses now um, it, but you know years ago when i did alien there's constant problems with these lenses they're all over the place 185 tends to be more traditional you know widescreen um you know 233 three. Or Super 35, which will give you the same as 233, is a technical fiddle at the end. Today, it's a lot easier and more successful than it used to be. It was a bit of a pig because you could suddenly find you're going through two generations. And you're losing, you're always fighting between your original showprint and then the next phase is always one generation down. And of course, you like to be all single generation, but um, that's something you're always fighting. And as soon as I started cast Family, I suddenly realised that Mum didn't seem to have much of a role and, until I met Ruby Dee. And Ruby is this very celebrated New York actress who's now in her 80s, actually. I met Rube and I suddenly realised, my God, she's going to be great. And so she, she evolved there were only a few scenes. She was really cool, really great. From her, once you have that, then I have to suddenly really pay attention to all of them. So I got in there. I was asked would I meet some rappers you know, hip-hop, rap, Common, TI, Riz. I was at first cautious about inviting what were musicians and singers into a process where they're going to be acting, and uh, at the end of the day, I just took a chance on it and uh, it worked out very well. Sometimes a singer will turn out to be really great because singing is performance, particularly when you're dealing with either hip-hop or rap, it is words. So you're watching a performance of a kind, you know? You're watching a musical performance. And so they just fell into it pretty easily. And you don't get much conventional rehearsal on a thing like this. I meet him very often that morning or met him briefly, you know, like for an hour before talking about what it's going to be. Then I bring bring him in. We've just discussed the wardrobe. I go and visit them in the morning, talk to them about what I'm going to do today. And I hustle them together and we actually do a lot of those scenes literally on the spot. That's why you got that kind of looseness, and that freedom. And so they each one took on shape and form as I saw different people. So eventually I was seeing people many times. So I was trying to form a team of who could be the nephews and nieces. Then once I got that, then I gotta have the wives. And most of the wives don't have any words to say. So I'm casting blind, knowing it's quite dangerous because (laughs) I'm gonna go into a lot of scenes and um, a lot of it's gonna to have to be kind of done on the spot. So there's a lot of that happening on the spot in that kind of area, and that those little kind of seamlets. The backbone, though, by the time you get there, is all absolutely locked down. Hey. What's wrong, y'all niggas ain't never seen coochie before? <laughs> Why do y'all nick? So they can't steal nothing. <laughs> all right. yeah. Most important thing in business is honesty integrity, hard work, family, never forgetting where we came from. this was one of the last few blocks in Harlem that and so I did everything around here. That takes experience to say, I don't care. So you are what you are in this world. This man, Tango, had been a nuisance for a while, and historically, if you really want to know the history of it, and therefore it was designated that Tango had to die. Tango, with the passing of Bumpy Johnson, Tango would vie for the position of taking over the void that Bumpy left. Frank could not have that happen. So this was the reckoning. This this had to be, according to Frank. It's business, and Frank wasn't gonna share anything. This is a guy from The Wire, Idris Alba. Uh, He was great and charming and aggressive as Tango. This is the the famous Tango. His bodyguard, and it's all a lot of show. And once the guy says, "What are you gonna do? Shoot me right here?" He 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 can't back down. He has to just do that. He just does just that. Well, it's interesting. In the one version I'd heard that that jar, which had a few dollars in it, laid by the body for hours before the ambulance came and the police came to pick it up and the money was for the cops and nobody touched it because they knew whose it was. So everyone in, in a sense was uh, respectful or afraid, I think is a better word, of the king. In Black Rain I'm not doing period particularly. Um, it's In fact it was kind of modern at the time. Uh, someone told me it was the same thing. It was modern. It was a, who was you know de- designated as a bodyguard who crosses the line into another social group, falls in love with the socialite who he's guarding. So they, they were contemporaries for the time but so in that respect they were easier Any less than that And this one where you're saying, well actually it's 70s, it's period. So you're looking and say, well why is it period say well actually it's 1969, 70. So it means I can't steal a shot because I'll always have a modern SUV in it or something. So everything has to be set up and controlled. And also because New York City is now starting to look quite cosmetic, I'm having to find all the areas that still could be seen as the war zones. No, I, I didn't, so uh, here I am. And, uh... yeah, they're, quite, they're tidying this up now. As we were shooting, they're already tidying it up. So it's disappearing fast. That's the thing, is to get it. this. You won't be able to do this kind of film in New York City because it's so... So cosmetic. The the boring things like if I've got a unit of whatever there's three hundred and fifty people, personnel with all the backups of the, the toilets, the trailers, the the makeup, the food, and you want to move, you're moving a wagon train of vehicles. Then you've got to have places to find them to park. You've got to pay for the parking. You've got to have movement control. You've got to have police. So the transport manager on a film like this, it's enormous. Logistics are enormous. So, whenever you don't have to move, don't move. You know, it's like it's a it's a constant, you know,
1: choice of which do you show? Do you show the event or do you show the discovery of the event? That that was one of the hardest things I think, um, because you see Frank, uh, you know, doing what he does, and that's interesting. Then you have to show Richie discovering these things. So. And uh, that was tricky. That was that was what made me have to write these two scripts. Was because I couldn't, as I was going through it, decide you know which 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 way I wanted to go with that, whether I wanted to see something from Richie's point of view in his investigation, or from Frank's point of view of actually doing the thing. Back in those days, you know, this was pre-CSI. There wasn't there wasn't a lot of uh, I don't know procedure. There wasn't a lot of of evidence. There wasn't anything that you you could run tests on. What these guys did more than anything else was sit in cars and watch. Uh, They followed guys around. Um, They tried to make connections between, you know, this guy on the street and the guy that the guy at that and the guy that that guy goes to to get his uh, supply. To me that's great procedure. But it is it is often sitting around and guys sitting around in cars. I think uh, you think about film like French Connection, which which is which is also dealing with that kind of investigation. It's it's
0: it's what they did. She is from Puerto Rico, and uh, yes, Puerto Rico, and. Um, I'd seen, she'd only done one film in Puerto Rican, little Puerto Rican movie, and I'd seen a headshot with Effie Kaufman. I said, look, I want it to be the real thing because Mrs. Lucas was Puerto Rican. And she, in fact, was the, or had been the beauty queen, or one of the beauty queens of Puerto Rico. I'd seen shots of her, and she was pretty. So I looked, I was looking Spanish, you know, and I didn't want to cast any of the known Gals, it's easy to go from this and cast a gal star. And I don't know, just needed because I've got I've got Denzel and Russell, I, I got enough, you know, stars. I figured I, I could go less known everywhere. Um, and uh, in fact, I was really lucky to actually get Tuitel, this this guy, to play the brother. I was really surprised. I said, No, no, I'll do it. I want to come, with, I want to be part of the movie. I know who Frank Lucas was. I think the film will turn out really well and I'll, I'll do it. So it was great to have him. He did, he'd worked with Denzel before as well. This is the brother who was always getting, going with the flow and was enjoying the world, of what, the world he was in. And Frank, I don't think he enjoyed the world he was in, he, he enjoyed what it gave him, power and money. He's saying don't dress up like you a sign saying you want to be arrested. And, uh, and look at him, he looks like a banker, looks like a bank manager. Um, the brother loved the drop, the fallout from the world he was in. and That's why he kind of was connecting with Nicky Barnes. So his brother was getting, Frank was getting paranoid about that. Saying, don't you, see so you like Nicky Barnes? You know, uh, you want to go work for him? Because Frank felt that Nicky Barnes, and I'm not sure, Frank's never said he didn't trust Nicky Barnes, but they were competitive. They are very competitive. You know, Nicky Barnes still says it was him. In fact, Lucas says it uh uh-uh, uh it was me. Nicky Bunch still a lot.
1: Yeah, this would be one of those scenes that you might see in a in a in in in, in the old black exploitation movies, the nightclub scene. But this has a much different feel. I mean everything about it. The approach was so kind of down to earth, that um, I was trying to write something that could happen, you know, or something that did happen, and rather than trying to write a finished uh, movie with music. I I think I indicated at one point that there was um, Music in their wedding reception scene, which is no longer I don't think they ever even shot that When uh, when he gets married when Frank gets married And that was only because Frank had described it and he had told me what what? Uh, what's his name? Uh, I said Lloyd Price. Yeah, he was at his he sang there at his uh, At his wedding reception, so I put things like that in. if they if they were actually you know, mentioned by, by Frank or Ritchie, but um, I, I do think that there's a kind of an understated use of music in this film which is great, you know, it's not exactly what you would expect.
0: Great writing is almost like great journalism, where you're trying to create the fabric of the truth of the story you're telling and you once you get that once you draw those corridors you got to stay within the corridor you can't step outside of it otherwise it starts to get you know a cheap version it, it's the difference between what i call and people don't really don't understand what uh, sometimes what i mean when i say it's the difference between a movie and a film i think a movie is an americanism but a movie tends to be a good description of what we see in cinemas today mostly is ephemera ephemeral Ephemeral means pulp, right? You know, like in pulp fiction. It means it's discardable. It's like Chinese food. You have it once, you have it. That sounds, this sounds racist, but it's Chinese food. I love Chinese food. I'll footnote add. But what you, you know, it's amazing how you eat enormous amount within an hour. It's gone. Is that right? And you think that's going to eat someone else. Movies tend to be discardable. You see it, you walk out, you forget about it, and you never even think about it again. A film, you see it, you walk out, you're still thinking about it. And then the next day, you're still thinking about it. And next year, maybe you're still thinking about it. So occasionally, you'll have on your shelf a film, which is now, thank God, in a small box called a DVD. You can go back and revisit it like a good book. How many of those have you got? Not many. And that's what one tries to do. One tries to make films as opposed to movies.
1: I think what's great is that, you know, It's like trying to get money for something like this isn't easy. It's, you would think, well, you know, they're trying to catch crooks, so they do whatever they have to do. It's not like that. I mean, to get $5,000 or $10,000 with the chance that you might lose it was very difficult. You had to sign your life away for it. And, uh, but anyway, his boss, uh, you know, as he says, you lose this, uh, that's it, you're not going to get any more. You know, this is an important moment where they cross over the bridge. And this was something, you know, some a story point, really, that was very important. And, you know, you got to convey this, this idea that this river separates two different law enforcement jurisdictions. And you don't, these cops can't mess around in each other's jurisdiction. It's dangerous. They got stuff going, you know, they don't want anybody messing around with it
0: what i've learned to do is trust my intuition there's a voice and i think it it, it's again under the big e-word experience eventually you learn to trust your intuition and you may have good intuition you may have bad intuition if you have bad intuition then i wouldn't trust it but i think i've got good intuition and and time and again i have found it proved that i should have gone with what i felt and i i that was some time ago, and now I think, that's why I think I'm able to work so fast. I look at the locations and go, that's it. And they say, but there's six to see. Said, that's it, we're gonna shoot here, let's jump the gun and go to the next block of locations, which are nothing new. We have this place. In other words, I'll make a decision on the spot. I won't say, well, I wanna see everything. That's intuition. And, that, and they're all aligning so that they fit within the mosaic of the fact you're doing a period film which is in the early 70s because I was there but at the same time I don't know what Jerusalem was like when it was destroyed but that's intuitive as well because you look at lots of reference and paintings and and engravings of the period and um, you put all that together into one big melting pot which is your intuition and you say, I imagine this is what it would be like on, the, on that morning. Filming in pictures, and, the, and, the, and as Hitchcock, was Hitchcock said pictures were a thousand words, well, I'm not dealing in radio play, I'm dealing in pictures, so I suddenly realized that I had a huge advantage in having an eye that was kind of effortless, and therefore I can pre-see it, preconceive it. I can see, pre-see most of the film I'm shooting now, and I'm gonna be shooting for the next three months. I can see it. I know what it's gonna be like, I know what it's gonna look like. And that's a kind of funny organic memory process. And yet I cannot I've got no retention for names, but I've got a huge retention for places and locations. I can still draw the house that I used to play outside of when I was six years old and House Road in South Shields. I can still draw that and remember the the grass, and the trees. It was on a corner. It was in a cul-de-sac. And I can draw it. So that's a different kind of brain, right? Which is, in this case, incredibly useful because I'm in the business of movies. And 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 what you and 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 what you do is you go through your own evolution, like a painter. Actually, I think um, I've gone through from cameras on tracks and everything silky, smooth and beautiful and, and um, like the duelist in a funny kind of way. To, and things are dictated by the material. When I was gonna do Alien, I decided there's no cameras ever gonna go on a track, except the end when I couldn't hold it that long. Um, I had to put it on tracks, go down the store, corridor backwards when she was charging around for 17 minutes in the, in the film. But uh, everything was handheld which was really exhausting, but by being handheld, even the dialogue scenes were handheld, because the handheld camera is always breathing a little bit, it's always moving. So there's a psychological unease to that, so it was useful for Alien. In this, I want this to have a funny sense of, in the looser sense of the word documentary, docudrama, uh, which means you're, tr- you're reaching for the truth.
1: I think, you know, one of the reasons that this film feels the way it does is um, is that Ridley is also not precious about things, you know? I mean, sometimes you might look at some of his other films and say, well, they're so beautifully composed, you know, the attention to every composition is, is so extraordinary. You know, in, in this film, there's a kind of a, a resistance to to being precious or for everything, being perfect. And um, I think it finds perfection in that. (laughs) Mr.
0: Roberts, I'm here for our appointment.
1: This is an interesting kind of shorthand, I think, um, because this was actually the first of two scenes. In the script, there was a second scene where basically that woman interviews him. The woman from Child Social, social Services, and it's a three-page scene asking him about his old friends and you know who he hangs out with. Does he hang out with these gangsters from you know the old neighborhood and stuff like that? And uh, you know, at a certain point, it got cut, which is fine because everything you need to know is in this scene. I don't. I mean, I I, I don't really. When I'm writing, I don't really think, oh, okay, I have to, I have to, I have to follow some sort of rule with this character, or this character has to have his own arc, or or that character does. I mean, I know who the main characters are, I know, I know who's important uh, in terms of, um, you know, uh, de- developing their 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 story and their character, and it's really just in doing that that the other players support that, and. Uh, and once their support is <laughs> it's of no value to the story, you know, then as characters, they're no, they're no value anymore. But um, I think you find when you follow the story and you follow the main characters, these, these uh, supporting characters will come in in a natural way where they're needed and they will go back you know, when they're not needed.
0: I learned about music, which I hadn't really paid much attention to other than cursory view on doing television commercials years ago when by the time I did the duelist, I must have done 2,000 commercials. And they were always musically driven but I hadn't really thought carefully about it. And the first guy was a sound editor on Duelist was Terry Rawlins. And Rawlins was an absolute master of music and said, look, and he'd, he'd, and in those days you'd have a disc, a vinyl. He said, watch, you do a needle drop on a sequence say, watch, I thought we'd come in here. And you'd see this passion for music in relation to the image. And that off that experience I gave him Alien to Cut as his first film. Cutting. Because I couldn't work out why an editor wasn't also in charge of the music. Now it's become very norm that the editor ought to be the person because he's you know, the editing is a is a great separate job. There's three parts to making movies, and some of the great writers I've talked to, like Eric Roth, said, you ever thought of directing somebody? He says, Nah. he said, by the time I've written it, I've directed it. So that means he sits on his desk in his office or st- on his boardwalk staring at the sea, and he, wait, he lives in California, and is enviable because he never moves from that desk except to stroll down the beach and actually stop himself going crazy with frustration, maybe. He said, by the time I've written it, I've made it. So that's one part. Then there's the directing part. Now I'm usually party to that, because my entire life is spent evolving and developing material. So I spend a lot of time with writers. So at any one time, I've got, for me personally, nine serious projects, all in process, all being written or trying to get the best of the best to write at nine, so I'm already looking, even if I work the speed I work now, I'm still not going to do much more than one a year, that's incredibly fast. I mean, actually I've done American Gangster quicker, but let's say that you're looking nine, ten years ahead right there. They're all not, maybe subjects, they're all definite, definitive choices about why. So I try and piece those guys together to say, will you do this? Good writers, the best of the best. then there's the final process when you've completed photography. Then I get rid of all the stress and pressure. It's all gone. And you go into a dark room and now you're you putting the film. You've already made the film when you're writing it. You've made the film when you're directing it. Now you're going into the editing room and you're making the film again. And now you're able to really tie it down to what it must be because all the pressure's gone and you, you've got all the pieces. So in in a, in a sense, a director goes through three, three uh, make uh, three remakes. Steve does write long, so a lot of the times I know the scene's going to come down and do that. In the, I'd rather have it long, and then find a way of trimming it back in the editing room because you can, particularly the way the way editing has become nowadays, that editing is transformed itself into really ev- uh, in- inventive and evolved communicative patterns where you don't have to have a person stand up, walk across the room, put their hand in the door, open the door and walk out. That doesn't happen anymore. I could cut right in the middle of our sentence and jump in the sentence to the end. So that evolution has occurred, which is good because that means you, you're, not, you're, you're, you're less agonizing about continuity. You know, if you were 20 years ago, it's a different way of thinking. I think commercial commercials did that. Rock videos did that. They adjusted the process in the way we, we edit films.
1: I stay away from sets. <laughs> um, I, I, I find that, you know, a writer is the last person you need on a set. Um, that's I mean, that's my point of view. I, I find that it's frustrating because there's not much you can do there's not much you can do to help if things aren't going well you know the, the problems that are going on on a set are different than what a, a you know a writer might be able to solve and uh, you know if there is something that needs uh, some work you know there's email and um, i did i did some writing during the production but not very much don't nobody talk to me directly
0: you understand you got business with me you know One actor once said to me, a very well-known actor once said to me, "You know, we get to do it more often than you do." I said, "Yes," and that drives me crazy. I said, "But because I am stuck with a movie for a year after you have gone, or eight months after you have gone." I said, "By the way, I'm going to do something about that. I'm going to make that. I'm going to tighten up this whole pre and post production." And, um, but they're right. An actor will do fairly effortlessly, unless he's a big star, three movies a year. Because if you, if, like, Carla Cochina is, let's say, in her, is a week's work. She may do that, that several times, plus a play she did in Broadway, uh, plus two movies which are, um, you know, I mean, so she, they're able to evolve and experiment by doing it. As you do it, you're experimenting. With a director, you're kind of stuck with one project for a bit, and that's always been my biggest frustration. you're dying to see the rest of the house. Yeah, of Denzel is a great preparationist, absolutely prepares, absolutely knows everything, absolutely knows his lines. You'd be amazed how many don't. And that's all homework, that is all homework. It's about sitting there and really doing the job. Uh, so that when he comes on set, he is free to do what he wants. And uh, I enjoyed working with him because he was so prepped that when he's prepped, and they're both prepped, when they're both prepped, it gives me some freedom. So I may come in knowing what I exactly want to do, what exactly what I want to do, and persuade them that this may be the way to go, but I can leave myself wide open for them to say, I don't want to do that, can we not do this? But that rarely happened because they seemed to, you know, like the way my suggestions were in terms of saying, let's do this, let's do that. There are occasional discussions, but I think we're moving so fast that I've also discovered that actors love to move fast. When they feel they're really achieving something, you can really see start to see them enjoy it. And um, we got a lot through a lot of stuff, so there's a lot of material in the film that's somehow jammed into this two and a half hours, or two hours and 27 minutes, I think. We could work. We could do some You can't smoke. Somebody faking a cigarette can't. Smoke. If you never smoked, it always looks like you've never smoked. So Denzel loves his cigars. Um great cigar. I was a big smoker actually for years. I started smoking when I was eight. I'd be in raid shelter smoking wood mines, you know. And uh really like a bit of passing cloud and creme de month, you know, eight years old, Like The um yeah, the uh, smoking thing is the problem about smoking is, I really like tobacco, and it wasn't a it wasn't a nervous knee jerk, oral compulsive need. It, I really like tobacco, so I, I started on you know Marlboros and things like that, and you know gradually ditched them and got to um, Monty's, because access to really good Cuban cigars, and it, good cigars like chocolate. I mean I'm not a chocolate fan; I'm more of a cigar fan. But I collate it to chocolate because. It smells like it's gonna taste. You know how coffee smells great and doesn't taste quite as good? And tea kind of smells, again, tea smells good and doesn't quite deliver. A cigar, a great cigar, smells good, tastes good, and by God, it makes you feel good. Um, And um, it has a richness to it, okay? You're not disappointed by the the wonderfully thick um, taste and smell and aroma. a great cigar. The fatter the cigar is the cooler the smoke. The Robustos are fundamentally the thicker, the thick, the the key is the thickness. It's not the length, it's the thickness. So if you're in doubt or you get a short fat cigar which is a Monty or a, you know, Cuban, real Cuban, you're gonna be fine. But Denzel's a big cigar smoker and uh, he loves to, Frank would smoke Cubans all the time. So he was the reason why it was the end of the importation of the Cuban cigars from Havana. You know that? Oh, yeah, it's one of the big things, he said, no more Cuban cigars, because he would affect that whole industry. Needless to say, I think he'd ordered about 10,000 boxes just prior to that thing, so he had them in the cellar somewhere.
1: You know, the thing, the thing about Richie's investigation that was interesting was he... he had the, the evidence, he had Blue Magic very early on, the investigation you know the purpose of the investigation was to find out first really who was selling it and then secondarily who was bringing it in he didn't think that that was the same person or the same group it had never been before so it was not something that 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 he imagined uh, he would find frank was very cautious Uh, he was not Ostentatious. He wasn't one of these superfly kind of uh, gangsters with flashy clothes and jewelry and big cars. Uh, he lived very quietly, like Bumpy Johnson had, and uh, you know, so he was pretty much invisible to the to the uh, to the police. Um, so Richie, you know, Richie had to follow the trail from the street from you know one bag of of blue magic on the street to who the supplier was who the distributor was and fi- finally led him to to really first to Frank's family and then then after that to Frank himself this was always in my mind as a a kind of a key event in the in the um, story because it was the first time that they would end up in the same room room, even though it's a very big room (laughs) Madison Square Garden
0: Josh Brolin was the biggest single surprise to me in the whole movie he really delivers and think about it not many scenes but they're so memorable um, but I think that's what's good about most of the characters. They're all, uh, all did well. Uh, even the guy who plays Julie did well. He was just inordinately hard. He's a hard man and a crude man. But I think what I, that's an, and that's an odd decision. I thought, despite the fact he's hard and kind of playing a crude man, right? Probably a killer and seriously bent, right? As a cop, because of that, I'm going to give him a stylish house. So, Oddly enough, he had, um, it's not my kind of house, but I I gave him that 50s, good example of a 50s house where he he actually has his car blown up and uh, in a good neighbourhood. They said, well, what do you want to, and that's where you go with your intuition, you know what, I'm going to move him out of the sticks. I'm not going to stick him in Staten Island. I'm going to have him in a rather nice neighbourhood because he's got enough money because he's on the take to live better above the grade. And God help anybody who even asks, they wouldn't dare ask. So out of that, I, I saw this 50s and I thought, this is for Josh, and he was tickled and he went in, oh I get it, he said, this guy would love to be in Hollywood. And I said, you're absolutely right, he's kind of flashing, it's Hollywood eyes, that's where you get the, the car and then the, the, um, the Rockefeller and actually even in the room you've got a small baby grand. And interestingly, it's minimalist, so he's very neat and precise. So that's why I thought when he stands up off the bed, the cup of coffee spills, that's a big deal. Something terrible is going down. So those little the things are just thrown in on the morning. Catano, right? Joe Lewis shook his hand. The curiosity about how does he get a seat? Like, how does that guy get a seat like that? And that guy's not on my radar. I don't know who he is. But it, I, to me, it was more about where you're sitting than anything else. So I go to the limo service, find out who's this guy. You pay him some money. They say, well, actually, the bills are sent to... Um, Staten Island, you know, and or and Teaneck, which is a kind of posh middle-class district, um, but the car delivered him to an apartment in Manhattan. So immediately, and you know, most of police watching isn't spectacular. It's watching. It's constant vigilance, diligence, and eventually you'll get cross wires. Something will cross collateralize, and you get a lead. That's what it's about. There was no great revelation in this. They kept, the studio kept saying, but. But there's no great revelation in this where, you know, we get the bingo, that must be frank. I said, that's not how it happens. I said, how it happens is close proximity, constant diligence, at some point you're going to get a lead. But will that be interesting? I had to say, yeah, of course it'll be interesting.
1: I love the fact that his downfall came from love and not something else. He adored his wife. He wanted to make her happy. <laughs> and uh, inadvertently kind of ruined their lives. Well, what he was thinking was pleasing his wife. His wife had bought him a chinchilla coat, and um, he loved her, and (laughs) she wanted him to wear it. And he thought it wasn't such a great idea, but he did it anyway, and, uh, and then realized a little bit too late that that was the dumbest thing he could do. That was the beginning of the end for him. You know, here's, here again, you have the, the cops and the gangsters, and it's hard to tell which one is which.
0: But this man, I have this, this cheek to actually do this, which is courage actually to do this on the day of his marriage was stretching it. And Truppo is a fictional character, but he's
1: representative of that, of that kind of cop from back in the 70s who was on the take. Yeah, he, uh, causes problems for both of them. (laughs) That's what's great about him. He's, he's a, he's a thorn in both of their sides. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, his greed is just, is just too much. And, um, he's threatened by, by, uh, Richie's honesty. I mean, that's, that's his undoing, finally. But, uh, no, he's, uh, he is a great villain. Good casting, too. He was very good casting. He's great.
0: I never questioned this because I liked the idea so much. So I didn't want to question it, but I'm not sure it actually happened this way or whether it was an evolution of Steve's. But I think there's always nearly always a figment of truth in it, and the fact that Frank Lucas burnt the coat may have followed his wedding, but I think it may have followed more the night out, the fight. And... um, he felt vulnerable because of that coat, because it, it, it was not part of his own signature. And the coat, which was a gift from his wife, um, uh, in those days cost maybe, I don't know, $50,000, which is a huge amount of money for a coat even now, but then it was absolutely inordinate. Sable, yeah. So uh, he always attributes the weakness, the crack in his armor was this coat. And I I looked into it and I thought, no, I didn't think it was the coat. I think it was where he was sitting. That's what I made. I turned it into where he was sitting. Um, The importance of his seat. Second row, better seat than Tony Beardo, who was the gang boss. He's got Joe Louis with him, and actually he stands and shakes hands with Muhammad Ali. So that, to me, was the most interesting thing. He had put himself in in the light, and Richie was there. Now, that's made up. But we thought it was a good place to do it. We thought it was a good way of actually seeing how Frank became illuminated. Enough to then have Richie decide to follow, saying, who is this guy? So he had lots of businesses which were fronts as distribution collection centers. The laundry service, the tire service, the furniture makers, the carpentry shop, the shop that made fire doors. He had a shop that made fire doors, of which there are many, many Fire doors required in Manhattan, by law. So people would walk in as customers and deliver heroin, uh, pick up heroin, and then come back at the end of the day and give them money.
1: Ball players, friends, musicians, never, never with organized crime guys. Sundays, he takes his mother. It was months and months and months of agony. <laughs> uh, I can look back on it now and laugh, but it, it wasn't funny at the time. Uh, you know, I had I had so much story and all of it was interesting to me. I know I knew I couldn't leave it like that. Um, it had to it had to be managed in some way that made sense. And um, so for the longest time, it was it was you know it was all of the story rather than, a, than you know the more focused story than it is now. And there's there's no formula for for me at least on how to how to how to make that work. It's um, it's just going in, it, going in every day and, and working on it. I didn't have to make stuff up for this. Well, in the case of this film, in the case of Frank's story, you know, it was an embarrassment of riches. I mean, there was more to his story than I could possibly put in a, in a, in a film, you know, so that the responsibility is really to pick the right stuff as opposed to make stuff up. I mean, I there's the challenge is how to organize it all, really. And and where to what to focus on, how much weight to give which ideas in the film and which characters. But in terms of the kind of raw material that I had to work with, I had I had more than I could possibly use. He lived a very Full and exciting life, Frank Lucas.
0: See how posh and flat is? That's a rather nice 50s house. And uh, here's the gift. This is for Thanksgiving. A turkey. He is a turkey. And I love this because I never told him when I was going to blow it up. That's why you get that reaction. He, that reaction is real. I didn't tell him when I just went in two, three, bang. And we let it off, and he went, son of a bitch. Give him a shock of his life. It's a great, it's a great reaction. I love that car. He said, I know you did. He said, it could be a house next time. Lord, we thank you for his food. We're about to receive the nourishment of our body. There's lots of layers in this film. The, which Thanksgiving is a national holiday of absolutely the purest of, of, of standards in the United States of America. I'm montaging that with a guy who, on the surface, is a super businessman with a super family, and they say grace, and they hold hands. He's a purveyor of heroin, I'm seeing people shove needles in their arms, and where you the importance is where you juxtapose it and you put it in the montage of of this national holiday. So whilst others live like this, others die like that. That's why you got it. And therefore, the irony of people holding hands as a family unit and needles being pushed into their arm to a piece of music that's nearly like an anthem. That's irony. That's how it's planned. I planned that. That's not by accident. Steve. Steve, come no, How you doing? The kid says, "I don't want to do baseball." Um, yeah, that kind of happened. Um, the boy had a good arm and could have been a pitcher, and ended not doing that. Ended up getting arrested, uh, but had an arm good enough to be a pitcher, you know, and actually qualify for whatever team. Would be at that particular m- moment in time i don't think frank was pleased by that which actually is the right reaction he's more thoughtful and i think frank maybe things like if this kid like a son it's like you don't be like me you know i don't need to be like me i'm i'm perfectly happy doing what i do but don't be, be like me because it's harder than you think and i think frank lucas that's we kind of discuss that saying you want pleasure there the fact that he wants to be like you or not i think not or ambivalence or you're not sure it's a surprise that he wants to be like you but then one of wanting to be like him can also be the trappings of wealth to be like you but then one of wanting to be like him can also be the trappings of wealth you know but that being a very successful baseball player you haven't got that kind of money but you got nearly that kind of money in the you know in the seventies, they're starting to get quite well paid. But Frank wanted to keep the kid pure, and we used that in the plot where that's on that day they keep the kid out of it, and except that one night where he makes a mistake and, and Richie says, um, "That's what the Lucas kid, the kid with the arm, the baseball kid," uh, where he's the guardian of the truck, and he all he's going to do is drive in, with maybe. 30, 40 million dollars of yeah. yeah, everybody's good, Nick. You know, everybody's happy. Charlie Baz, the Italians, you know, Johnny Lowe. everybody's happy except you.
1: Denzel spent time with Frank too. And, you know, I can look at Frank. I I am sorry, I can look at I can look at Denzel and see Frank in him. I mean, I can tell that he has met with Frank Lucas in terms of the way he carries himself and I don't know, just his he, he really did embody him. And that, you can only do that by spending time with somebody and, and uh, I don't know, absorbing who they are. But I look at him right now, in this scene here, any scene, and he, he even his face looks like Frank's to me. I, I don't generally write with, a, with an actor in mind Especially if it's based on a real person, and I've met that real person, it's hard for me to imagine any actor portraying the, the person that I know. So when I'm writing something like this, I'm thinking of Frank Lucas. Frank, even when I met him, was quite you know, a powerful figure, very personable, and a great storyteller. Um, you could easily imagine all of those qualities in a 35-year-old man which is his age, which is about how old he was um, when the story took place. And the same with Richie, too. I mean, Richie... I don't know how old Richie is, but he's... He's, um, he's a strong presence, and uh, even now, and uh,
0: quite an interesting character. Oh,
1: shit. Fuck, is that the cops there,
0: man? None of this was boarded, basically. I didn't need to, because it was all in my head. So... Uh, and, and it's the same on the one I'm doing right now. Um, there's a couple of sequences which involve digital because I've, it's some fairly lethal stuff with um, two Blackhawks and um, rockets in in Baghdad. And um, so you have to board that just to get it down. And they, we allowed some money in there for the CG. And I said, they said, What about all the skyscrapers? I said, Well, I won't shoot the skyscrapers. Besides, I'll be in so far uptown, I won't see any. And I, digital in this is, uh, there may have been a couple of, like signposts off street corners and things like that, but, and number plates on something, but other than that, no. Woo. Woo. Come on here a minute, Frank. Yeah. This is a great street. And I saw it driving while I was staying down in Tribeca, and I drove past and thought, God, what street? 27, so that's how we, we went back there, so I want to shoot in this street. It's pure 60s, doesn't touch. We just arrived and shot it like that. This left-hand side is Martha Stewart's building. This, that hasn't been touched, but they're protecting it. So there's galleries in the first floor. It's great.
1: Somebody's getting some money for the benevolent fund. Sorry, Frank. You ask a guy to talk about his life, it takes a couple of days before you really even get past the obvious stuff in their life and they start remembering things that they'd forgotten about Um, and that that only happens if you get if you get somebody talking for you know like I say hours or days I mean first of all Frank doesn't doesn't speak in chronological order like like anybody would you know his thoughts would dart around from this event to that event to you know, forwards in time, backwards in time. Nick or I would have to ask him questions to get him on certain subjects. There were certain things he didn't want to talk about. There were certain names he didn't want to use. There were certain stories that, you know, you could tell he'd told before. So it was, uh, it was a, a, you know, kind of this massive information with no form to it. Same with Richie. So I had the same kind of the same mass of information from Richie. And some of it overlapped, but not not much of it, you know. I mean, compared to each other's, you know, each 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 of their lives, the part that intersects is not that big. You know, so I transcribed every word of those interviews, and that took weeks just to do that, and then kind of stared at them for weeks. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, basically, I, you know, I, I, I work with, a, with an outline that's very broad to begin with and I know, I start to know kind of the key events and at the obvious events, which are probably the obvious things that they talked about, you know, you know that you're going to have to go to Vietnam, you know, you know that, uh, uh, you know, that, well, that, that they're, that they're going to come into contact with each other at a certain point. I mean, I didn't know for, for a long time that the, that the million dollar event would become so important in the story. That became, that became the focus, really, of Richie's story. That became the symbol of Richie's story. But it didn't just naturally happen that way. I mean, it was one of a, a hundred stories that he told. He would think, oh, well, that's really dramatic. Well, a lot of other dramatic things happened to him, too. I'd say it was probably, and I'm not proud of this, you know, six months before I started actually writing the script when I felt comfortable enough that I knew where the story was going. Do that. Richie, come on, I'm not taping it. How do you know because we're friends? That's one of the things that was interesting with uh with Richie, is Richie grew up in a neighborhood full of, you know, guys that went on to become wise guys. And uh He'd get together with them on Sundays and play, you know, softball. So he, you know, it's it's an interesting thing. When you've got a, you know, you've got cops and you've got gangsters, and they they uh, they're on opposite sides, but you know, they have a lot in common. They come from the same place. Yeah. You tell Maria I had to leave. I'm sorry. Tell her why. And when I when I first heard the story from Frank, you couldn't help but think of some of the, the films from the 70s that were made, the black black exploitation films. I thought right at the beginning, wouldn't it be great if we could make. You know, one of those kinds of films, but do it seriously. Don't don't do it as the, as the joke that, uh, or the uh, kind of the, you know, the over the top approach that that those films took. You know, so I treated this very seriously. I mean, everything, everything I felt, you know, had to be real. I mean, from the beginning, that was the approach. It's very down to earth, you know, I mean, the approach is very down to earth from the writing, I think, to the under, kind of, you know, serious, understated acting, not not, it's not over the top, you know, and uh, and the approach that, that Ridley used to shoot it. You know, it's not fussy. It's not, it's not elegant for elegant's sake. It's, um... It's elegant in its kind of grittiness, and um, that's something I'm, I'm very pleased with. I, th- I think he just he just he just nailed it in terms of its style. Sorry, it was never enough.
0: His life doesn't allow room for kids. She says it to him in the park. She said, "Richie, she said, you don't have room for us." He realizes that she's absolutely right. And you know he lives the life as a cop, and which, needless to say, he probably loves this life, this insecurity, and this this um, unknown quantity. Every day is different. It's a very exciting job being a cop. You're not paid much money, but it's a great job. And, and be honest with me, well, don't take it. I don't care. But but then don't go cheat on me. Don't cheat on your kid by never. Being the temp score is purely to drive it, like Terry Rollins. You drive the bus with a temp score. And then what very often happens, like the, like the temp score on Blade Runner bore no relationship to what Van Gellis did. Which is very often an interesting, um, you know, underlying statement about a great musician. Van Gellis, we had a very good temp score on Blade Runner. And what Van Gellis constantly surprised me and um, with what he wanted to do. And I'd go to him at night, editing, I'd go to him at night in his studio in Marble Arch. And... Um, he would say, I thought of this and he, it would be nothing to do with what we've done. And, um, and sometimes it is any musician is going to be independent. They're not going to follow a temp score. They, they may follow, you know, the fundamental drive and rhythm from a temp score. The temp score will generate in a good way. Good, great temp score will temp because don't forget, you're choosing from the best of the best. If you've got a good ear you're choosing from it, whatever and you're not paying for it you're choosing the very best of pieces of music and 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 a very sophisticated temp score you're try, trying to have it stylistically feel almost as if it's from the same composer mostly it's from nine different kind of composers you see but that temp score is important because you're going to preview with it so you're going to have to be selling the movie not with just driving music and all that stuff you're going to try and get um, music that underscores the period, underscores the drama, underscores the melancholy, uh, and the, the high points. <clears throat> and um, that's constantly trial and error. What do you think of this? Uh, what, do you know? what do you think of that? About that? And you learn to be, get very specific about it, about why not. And then if you can identify why not, you can very start very soon start to identify well exactly what should it be. The music in itself is another arena completely. It's another form of writing. This is different though, these special investigative unit, that's they Mark th- Stridenfeld, second time up, was my music supervisor, did the good year. And um, I think he did fantastically well on this. Because it's uh it's hard, you could have gone you know, shafty, or, you know, super, whatever, yeah. And that's exactly what I didn't want to do. Can you hear me eating? Is right. Um right? I'm having a biscuit, okay? Right. And um, we made a conscious decision not to go that way. In the same way, The Godfather by Francis's father, the soundtrack, Godfather track, Francis Ford Coppola's father, Carmine Coppola, wasn't it? It wasn't, I don't think it was Nino Rota, was it? Yeah, and then the dad did the music for Apocalypse Now. So they chose, I don't think that music was written, that was a classical Sicilian piece of music that they really locked into, and that's a clever choice. They lock in whatever works, whatever it takes to work. We couldn't do that we because you know what do what is gangster movie of the seventies? You don't want to do superfly, you don't want to do you know shafty kind of music, I mean which is all right, it was good music i don't I don't want that. I want something which will underscore the gravitas and the importance and the the scale and the and I wanted to get a sense that the funny kind of way the film feels slightly epic, biggish right and I wanted that feeling of the grandeur of this story and uh, then the importance of the character particularly Frank Lucas that he was a super businessman and a king of the drug dealers so we went more nothing that Mark does is traditional so I can't describe it as traditional and I think Mark dips into and it can be influenced by the best of maybe that particular period and you might not absolutely recognize it unless you're listening very carefully So I think it's a very clever combination of what he does and what his influences are from the past. I'm very engaged with the music and listen to everything, obviously, as it comes up, including the so-called popular music of the period. Everything goes through me, and, um, and I've evolved, I guess, a fairly good intuition and choice and taste for particularly score music. I tend to be a very classical man. I mean, you basically can't beat Mozart, Vivaldi, and the best of Bach, sorry, in the, early, the very early, um, early music. Um, but on top of that, I've learned to be, have a pretty Catholic taste because, out of film, out of the film experience. And so I learned doing films that actually music is dialogue. And dialogue can be music there's a rhythm to dialogue sometimes which is beautiful and there's a music to that but conversely that when you're putting music onto a film it's almost like the final voice that's going on and the voice will push and pull you and critics used to say it's manipulative and I say well that's what that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard that's what we do for a living theater is manipulative rock and roll is manipulative manipulation or it It affects one's feelings, right? And unfortunately, the word manipulation has got a bad rap. But that's what drama does. That's what we're meant to do. There's no question that music can push and pull and play with your emotions. But what we avoid and what I never do is be sentimental. And the worst aspects of bad music is when it gets sentimental. And sentimentality, I had a very good definition. I didn't make up the definition. Somebody once said that sentimentality, when, either when in music or acting or whatever it is, or even painting, is, is sentimental. sentimentality is unearned m- emotion. In other words, when you don't earn the feeling that getting there is quick or cheap, that's sentimental. Right? And so I think that's the thing one constantly watches out for, particularly if you're actually doing a scene which is a love scene or a scene which is a, even a violent scene. Sometimes it, you question say, well, do we need music on this at all? Let the violence play itself out because the music. There's music in the, in the sounds of, of the violence. You, you may not need it. So very often in it, when you get into something which is particularly violent, you try and write music for it, and sometimes it's very difficult, unless you're doing a monster movie, you know? And there aren't many good monster movies, out there? The of Jersey, someone's going to take another shot at it. Richie. You and I got to start working together. We need to step up our efforts. Next time, the aim could be better. We need to keep this cash cow alive.
1: You know, once you're into it, it doesn't matter. I find that you know the length of a film doesn't matter when you're into it, and things are happening
0: quickly enough. It can just go on and on. I really do. Frank Lucas. What's the matter with you? Frank Lucas. I mean, except those in, against him. And um, you have a scene later when, when Tony Beato is saying, success has enemies. Be unsuccessful and have friends. That's a good line. That's a Zalianism. Pure Zalian, that. So that's pure Zalian, but the, the, the logic, I love that logic, you know? That's the best of thinking, right?
1: The idea that he, you know, could remain sort of above the Mafia in that they were coming to buy from him, it caused, it caused problems. It caused problems, I don't know, there may have been race problems too, but I, I think certainly from a standpoint of his having cut other people out of, the, having cut the middlemen out of the process, you know, they, they weren't too happy. The more money he was making meant the less money somebody else was making. So his life was always in danger because of that. At one point, you know, his mafia friend says, well, that's the way it is, you know, if you're successful, you can, you're going to have enemies. If you want to be unsuccessful, you can have friends. It's your choice.
0: The actual Vietnam War was always a milestone. Uh, Sorry, the, the, yeah, the evolution and devolution of the Vietnam War was a, pass- a useful passage of time that Steve had written in, yeah. and so it comes out of um, you know, what's useful to tell a story doing a page by page passage of time and linking events with right here. This is now the disarm. We're coming, approaching disarmament. They're getting out. They're going to leave, right? Vietnam here. So that's great for us because, A, it pinpoints this in history, gives a credence to the social order of events and actually links pretty accurately with what you know that the with Frank's unraveling career so very useful to us to have something as specific as a war going on that is based you know strong in American history
1: the, the TV was something that was always in the script and the sort of references to the Vietnam War was kind of the glue in terms of the It was used for for passages of time, and um, almost like chapter headings. Whenever we would leap in time, there would be some sort of reference to the news on television. The specific pieces that they picked, that's something that they picked, something Ridley picked, but in terms of keeping that, you know, at the beginning of the film, the first, or the beginning of the script, the first uh, image you see is a television image of uh, of the Vietnam War at its height, in 1968, um, and then one of the last television images you see is, uh, you know, the uh, the U.S. pulling out of
0: Vietnam. We were worried about the, uh, you know, the presence of Vietnam, the presence of how the soldiers in Vietnam are finding heroin through Vietnam. How Frank had a cousin in Vietnam who had a bar in um, Saigon and those two boys who were heroin addicts he said they ain't coming back he says Frank he said he's okay and that's off that Frank simply called his cousin it's all true and said how you doing I'm coming out and the cousin organized a man who um, was good for business for the next seven years was completely reliable and they had a great exchange of cash for heroin. And it went on, because I, I imagined he'd, he'd seen lots of people. He said, no, he said, I got lucky. I used to call him James Bond, because he was tall in a white suit and drove a Rolls Royce up in the bloody mountains. And I, I thought, sounds good. I don't want to put that in. But, and that's the, the guy I got. I wanted to make him more quietly dignified. I don't think drug dealers necessarily have to be, have the appearance of being evil. It's business. I mean, I think we've avoided doing the biopic. We've we've done the film where the best thing happens where you you are engaged by the universe of Frank Lucas. And it all feels like it's in the present, right? Yeah, that's the trick. That's the trick. That's always the trick. I think this is the most contained Denzel's been for some time in terms of, you know, he's happy... He's emotional with his parent, his family, he's gentle with his wife, he clearly falls for the wife in the nightclub thing. At the same time, he can get savage in a flash, which I always like the piano scene where he crushes Jimmy's head in the piano, because he just uses whatever's handy. And if it happens to be a pencil, he stick it in your left cheek, right? Because once he explodes, he explodes, and you stay well back. Frank was pretty volatile um, I learned that from alien keep them keep the violence exclusive you know so when it happens it really something happens and you're really impressed by what occurs and that's way more uh, you know memorable and way more shocking so like little things like the piano like setting a man on fire to execute him and then shooting him let him off the hook by executing him you could let him burn a bit longer you know Shooting Tango in the head is the one that gets people the most, because there's no preamble. I didn't want any preamble. I wanted him to walk up, put a gun to his head. Tango says, what are you doing? Oh, you know, are you going to shoot me, Frank, from all these people, Frank? Boom, and he does. Even the idea, of love him, when he looks away, he doesn't even look at the guy, he just looks at the bodyguard and goes, bang. And it's, a, it's not a message to the family, it's a message to the street. Lots of people have had very bad beginnings. It doesn't turn them into bad guys. That's not an excuse. That is not an excuse. But what it did do for him is he was against any form of authority. It wasn't even about him against the white man. It was about a uniform and authority. And from that moment on, he became a legitimate gangster. And then was discovered by Frank, uh, by Bumpy, because Frank evolved into apparently a really quite brilliant pool player. So he'd hustle. And one evening he was, I think, down where, down south, I think. And Frank Lucas was down there, uh, uh, um, sorry, Bumpy was down there for some reason uh, and watched in a pool hall this young Lucas kid absolutely taking down all comers and making money from the pool table. And out of that, he talked to him and offered him a job, saying it was literally the building of the man. Come with me, work with me. I will groom you, I will dress you, and um, trust me. And he did. And then he became the driver, and I think the protector of Bum- Bumpy Johnson and other things. Right. What is there? Nothing leaves this area until we've checked it. All right,
1: Captain? Nothing. We've got to take the plane out, we've got to look at the trucks. Every man
0: here gets searched. Read the warrant, sir. Your husband's illustrious career is over. Now the feds are going to come in, are going to take everything. I mean, they're going to take it all but not before i get my gratuity i didn't know that they weren't allowing photographs of coffins obviously they don't want the constant flow of dead back from vietnam, from iraq but um in this i think it was it wasn't hidden i mean i, I think it was the glorious dead you know coming in from vietnam and uh, a lot of stuff was flown into and i could never get this straight because Frank said, well, sometimes North Carolina and South Carolina, because that's where the a- a- army base is. So I said, then you drove all the way down to North Carolina, or you sent somebody down to North Carolina to, to pick this stuff up out of the coffins. And he said, yeah. It's like, I said, how many times did you fly over to Vietnam? He said, many times. I said, well, how were you able to fly in the time? We said, why? You just get a ticket and you fly to Cambodia. I said, and then you've got a short jump in. You can drive in. He said, sometimes the drive was 10 days in. And I'm going, uh, I'm not quite sure how accurate that was. And what I had to do was simplify it down to what, you know, to suit the purpose of the narrative. Because you can't spend 20 minutes out while seeing him struggle sweating through the jungle. It's just not interesting. But the fact he did it is enough. And we, we play this bass kind of out of town as opposed to what would be Idlewild? It wouldn't be JFK. in Those days would be Idlewild, wouldn't it? Be called Idlewild. Because um, I don't. And yet, at the end of the day, I think you were actually having bodies flown in by American jets into the cargo area in in what is now Kennedy, and coffins would be taken out round the back and shipped out to get cleaned up. And if they were in one piece, the families would want to see them. So there's a whole cleanup process happening, and the. The um, uh, You go into details like saying, well, who is the embalmer and who cleans the body up? It's got to be cleaned up in Vietnam before you put it on a plane. so Because you've got to have embalmed the body for it to travel and not disintegrate. So, yeah, I guess so. I so, said, what do you mean you guess so? I mean, 20, tw- 20, 48 hours leaving, I said, sorry to be explicit, but leaving it out. And standing, not in a refrigerator, it's definitely going to go, right? So all that had to have been done there, I think. And can you imagine how swift and kind of fundamentally efficient it would have to be? Be quick, down, dirty. And what's awful is he was always able to find someone he could pay off. A pilot, a two-star general, he could pay him off. Just shows how corrupt the world is, how awful. Right
1: We paid off everybody. He was supposed to pay off.
0: That's why he was so
1: stunned when it all came crashing down, was because he felt he did everything he was supposed to do. you know. He took care of everybody. But uh, he didn't seem to understand that there were other people out there who were <laughs> hurting because of what he was doing
0: in terms of losing money. I had to annotate
1: the script, which means that I have to tell them literally where every line comes from. <laughs> um, and it has to go before a, a department called Errors and Omissions, and uh, every description, every character, every piece of dialogue, every location, every event has to be noted in terms of where did this come from, did you make this up, is it based on an interview, who said it, when did they say it, everything. And that's something you have to do with anything that's based on, on real real events or real people. It's, it's, it's standard. You know, it's not that hard, really. Um, I mean, sometimes it's hard to remember who, who told you something if you have more than one source. That's why you tape things. That's helpful. You can go back and listen to your tapes. And then they, they make certain determinations, When I say they, the the lawyers make certain determinations on what what's acceptable and what isn't. Usually that means you have to change somebody's name if you know if they want you to. I had certain names in here I'd made up that I had to change because they happen to be some somebody real. Every member of Frank's organization, every no fucking nigger has ever accomplished what the American mafia. I met Ridley on Hannibal, but we, we worked on something after that, I think. Ridley had come on to Hannibal before me. Um, so really, Ridley and Dino were trying to convince me to write the script for it. And I was reluctant, when I say reluctant, I, I, I wanted to make sure that if I did it, I was going to be able to do it in a way that was going to make them happy. And so I wanted to be very clear on what that would be, so I sat with Ridley for about a month. And you know, we really talked about every aspect of it ahead of time so that you know there weren't, wouldn't be any big surprises that either he wouldn't like or I wouldn't like when the thing was done. Yeah, because it was based on a book, you, know, you could talk about it in, in more specific terms and you could say something like this. So that was really the process. So I think when the script was done, it was not, it was not startling to him in any way. In terms of being something that he didn't you know might not want, the situation was really reversed here because i I had the script and I was trying to get him to do, to direct it. so I had to convince him of certain things you know he was concerned at a certain point about you know just the, the basic subject matter of you know heroin, drug and drugs, deaths from death from drugs and and uh, you know he was rightfully concerned about these things and uh, so I sort of had to talk him through some of that. It was really the the, the same
0: process, only in reverse.
1: If you been a soldier, they'd be soldiers. You know you know that. I mean, they all came here because of you.
0: I mean you called I'm not sure if Frank will ever admit to the matriarchal society, but I never asked him that actually. No. Sure. I mean I just let Ruby when I saw Ruby, I figured Ruby's it, that's it's gotta be Ruby. And Denzel was always saying to me, you know, I've done theatre with Ruby before. He said, She'll steal every scene. That I'm in with her, and the end of every scene, you look at me and wink. So, see that? Oh, it was interesting because when you know he,
1: when Frank got shot, he really didn't know who it was. I mean, it was. To this day, he doesn't know who who took a shot at him, and it really could have been anybody. I mean, it, it could have been somebody trying to rob him. It could have been, you know, some junkie just out of control, or it could have been a member of the Mafia, or it could have been, you know, you know, maybe from the, the, the you know, importers he put out of business. It could, it could have been anybody. The point is, when somebody starts shooting at you, what do you do? And you don't know who they are. <laughs> do you start, do you start just shooting back, or do you decide that maybe this is a good time to retire? with your winnings. This connection says, you know, quitting while you're ahead is different than quitting. You know, he got very angry that somebody was trying to put him out of business. How dare they?
0: Snow is very simple. It's snow candles. It's like a little candle with you just light. It's paper. There's no towers, and, and what they love to do, isn't that the realest snow you've ever seen? It's a paper candle, very cheap. I learned paper candles to see, that's art direction again. They love to put up towers and soap and shit like that. And I discovered these with Neil Corbell, the guy I did Black Hawk with, he has these candles and he just burned them. He said, look at that. And one guy with a candle can cover this whole bloody area, just run up and down. It's as light as Gossamer, because it floats upwards the soap this use soap all drops like that. snow doesn't do that snow flurries. yeah the air just the wind currents in the air naturally keeping it up in the air. hey yo, we
1: got four left man Let's make some fucking money in here air. one of the many things that amazes me about ridley is that he um, You know, he's an artist. He's, when I say an artist, I mean a graphic artist. He can draw anything. So you'll be talking to him about a scene and he'll actually just be sitting there drawing it as like this beautiful, you know, storyboard, just casually doing it while he's thinking or while he's talking, he does it. So you know that he's got this visual idea in his head for every sequence.
0: Uh, So here we are now towards the end. Um, But you know that it was about 100 degrees when I was shooting this? And the actors, unfortunately, have to wear top coats. It's bloody hot. I shoot this through the summer. This is actually the... No, no, we're actually getting into October, but it's still... You know, New York is very humid. Hot and sweaty. It only starts to get a bit more user-friendly around about November. There were a couple of things that actually
1: got cut from the script just, you know, for budget reasons before shooting took place that I miss. There was a scene with Nikki Barnes. An early scene with Nikki Barnes and Frank. That was a really good scene. But not much, you know, not much.
0: This is his ritual. His ritual of church was always like an alibi, and it was a a front. Always took his mother to church on, I think, Sundays and midweek. This tested really, really well. I was surprised how well it tested. You know, this tested at, like, Shrek level. You know, when you do it, audience research, this test is at 90, 92 or 94, which is really high. That Normally that's attributed to an animation film for kids. But I don't like testing. I hate it. I hate it. It's one of the, the part of the experience I hate. doing. And even to the extent I was kind of nervous about this and I wasn't going to go. I thought, you know, screw it. Nothing I can do now can make any difference. So I know Stephen's always said that he hates mm-hmm. testing. Will not go to a test. He gets... And I think I'm this little negative force sitting in the back of the theatre, you know, where what I'm feeling is actually welling out from me and affecting the audience negatively. And instead this time I was going to go into a bar and just have a couple of drinks for a couple of hours and come back in. Or maybe not go back and read about it the next day because they do audience research stuff. Was that place because I love that facade and they were about to clean it up and said don't clean it up don't paint it Yeah, but the, you know the whole of Manhattan has evolved dramatically and that's what it was like in those days I think between the two mayors of I think of Giuliani and Bloomberg they absolutely killed the uh, you know the corruption the prostitution they actually absolutely pushed it away uh, and and so the cleanup has really happened between Giuliani and Bloomberg Well I've seen this place maybe, been up there twice, three times and what I do is I draw a little plan on a piece of paper saying he'll arrive here, I want a phone booth put here so you can make the phone call from here, they will come in here, it's all literally marked out on a map and then they'll go up two ends of the buildings because I've invented two fire escapes at either end of the building because that makes sense to me, you get two teams going up and then they'll meet on the seventh floor, no actually it was higher, the 17th floor and that's they'll identify it because suddenly the living quarters will go quiet and all they get left with is a bit of tinny reggae. So a lot of this is done on the spot. So he nips into what is a dormitory for the girls probably. Once they're cutting, they're there for hours. They're probably there for 24 hours and a lot of, a lot of um, heroin cutting, chopping. And they made this thing up with the kid playing soccer with a, one of the guys. So you've got a way of getting to in through that door without having a flat out out and out straight shootout. so he's cuffed and bound they take the kid because they don't want to shoot the kid and then you start have it open up as this guy comes out and says where's timmy where's timmy and they start to get sus they're not really suspicious they just think timmy's welching is not working should be i'd
1: like to think that i've learned something from watching ridley do this, which is, um, you know, just do it. Do it, get it done, move on to the next thing, you know. Don't agonize over every single little thing, which I tend to do.
0: Um, it's amazing how quickly this was done. This is done in like three days, two days. Everything that goes up has to be capped and explosives, you see. Every shot you do has got a wire, electrical connection, and explosive. That's a blood, blood bag on his back. We're averaging like 40, 50 setups, which is um, fast. But also, I like working always with a minimum of uh, three cameras anyway. So those 50 setups might only be 25 setups, except I'm covering within the setup. So you're finished. I mean, if you, you take a little bit more time to prep on three cameras, or if it's a big stunt, 11 cameras, you know, Black Hawk Down was 11 cameras. And whilst it may take 45 minutes to set up, and then when you're ready, you say action, boom, and you do three takes, two takes, and is everybody happy, and say, yeah, that's it. So you move on. As opposed to spending four hours doing what was happening in all that 45 minutes. The best thing to do is not think about it. The best thing to do, is just begin. Take day, each day at a time, day by day. And gradually you're getting through it, and you think, damn, we did 50 setups today, you know. I always location hunt, um, have to location hunt uh, because I'm saying I think a lot of people don't bother. I have to see everything uh, because it's my homework and my homework, I'm seeing the inside of places, I'm seeing the inside of houses, I'm seeing how people live, I'm seeing how people dress and um, it's all information, you're, you're kinda, I glom onto all that kind of information. Found one house which hadn't been touched, I doubt, since 19, 1939. Big old brownstone, so we made that the center of his drug um, business.
1: Out home, baby. At a certain point, I didn't think it would get made. <laughs> Production had stopped uh, like two weeks before it was supposed to Go, I don't know when that was, two thousand three, two thousand four. Um, a lot of money was spent, and then, uh, you know. So I figured that was it. I don't think they. I believe that they were really making it until it was already shot.
0: <laughs> and you know, once they're in that walk of life, it's becomes if he's copped. And it's not copped by a corrupt snitch, then it has to be regarded as a fair cop. That's the expression, isn't it? Fair cop. All right, you got me. You got me. You know. And then the next thing is, how little can you negotiate if you t- give information, or you don't give, or you take you take the rap, and the boys will be there to support you when you come out. But ten years is ten years. Seventeen years is seventeen years. Twenty-five years is shocking. It's a generation. Yeah. Yeah. We got. I regard almost ten years as a generation now. Generational change is the change of attitude, and the kids now are changing it to every ten years. Like shocking how they adjust with computers and everything that's accessible for them. I hope it's working.
1: Now the joke was that, uh, you know, a joke now was that. Uh, After this case, after he put Frank in jail, he had to borrow three hundred dollars from the credit union to take a vacation, and they only gave the uh, prosecutor's office only gave him three days for a vacation. I mean, he didn't get any big reward or any big payment for this.
0: Now, whether you remember or not, he first in the first film he says, "I got a problem with public speaking," right? So now you have him has a problem with public speaking, so this starts to come back. He's uneasy about it. Richie said, you can't, you come in court. And he said, why not, I'm nervous. He said, you would never do it. The judge would order you out of the court. And I said, no, okay, so Russell said, well, let's leave it till the last darn 2nd Get him really uneasy. Then you remember and put it in the drawer, which I thought was a nice touch. Lots of good touches in this. Now this is very well edited here because we had a lot of speeches in the court, a long speech in the court basically saying fundamentally how bad Frank Lucas was. And I, I was very worried about getting stuck with a courtroom scene and then a scene of two guys sitting across the table and the film could go to sleep if you don't watch it. And it's the end of a movie which has been moving along pretty well. Nicely and you know, not flying, just the right pace. And so the best thing to do was to intermingle the two and actually remove what is not necessary, what is kind of repetition. And therefore, this plays out really well, I think this is beautifully done. And the scene I was always kind of worried about was two guys sitting across the table in jail at the end. And actually, probably it's the most powerful scene in the movie. Two great actors. Because I thought that um, we've gone through everything with all its trappings and all its bazaars, and you know, there's all kinds of things going for different scenes to make them have the appearance of being you know, more dramatic or more energetic or colourful or interesting. He does something here with a coffee cup, and that wasn't planned, and the only one take, everything else after that looks planned. He swats the coffee off the table, because that comes to where, Richie says, everything can return to normal. He always said, I want to use the explanation about what happened to me when I was 11 years old. I watched my 14-year-old cousin get his teeth knocked in his head blown off. And I said, well, then why not? Let's put it in. And he, we put it in. And then he got so angry during the telling of it that he could see it happen, him getting really angry, and he swat the coffee up. So now he's got no coffee. So watch what happens when this happens. Well, watch. He's going to get to the point where he says extortion, bribery, murder. So you're intercutting between him in the room talking and little bits of him in the court. But the, we decide the foreground importance really is the scene across the table. The court becomes secondary in terms of the order of events, in terms of how, how you edit it. That's the style. It was kind of written that way. That's how Steve was writing a lot in past and future, which I li- I really like that. So I've got right now, I'm going right into that past and future thing right now, the thing I'm doing. You get three, four things happening at once in different tenses. That's really interesting. Makes you pay attention. It Gives it dynamics, you see. That's why the film feels so dynamic without too much action. It's information. The the true dynamics are about information in the correct order. Then it's dynamic. It's not about shooting and jumping and killing things, no. Nice to have that in occasionally. No, I think, unless I'm mistaken, he's saying what you represent, Frank, is a successful black businessman. They hate that. And they hate you. The mafia hates you. Because you're going to cost them money. They hate you for your success. And he said, when you go to jail, everything can return to normal for them. The street will return to normal. And he says, normal? I'll tell you about normal. And then he goes into the past. And you watch what happens to the coffee cup pure zillion. Two good actors like this across the table. This is gold dust. The first thing he says is, tell me something. My lawyer said to me, um, is it true? And in fr- fact, he's already going, oh, fuck me. Here we go. I can't bear this. So he's going to ask me as well. And he says, yes, I did. He said, what, what, what why did you do that? He said, it was the right thing to do. Ah, that's a good answer. The right thing to do. Um, and he said, you know, Johnny Law got it. Not you. You didn't get anything. And all that evolves, which is really great. And yet he's sitting there. There you go. Here goes. The coffee cup. Now. You know what he says. It makes no difference to me. For you to end up dead tomorrow, he says. Frank, get in the line. That one stretches around the block too. Around the block. All right. This is where it goes. He says, "All right. What do you want? What do you want to do?" And this is where I watch. What do you want to do? Watch, Now Russell, because I kept it running, pushes the coffee back, and then he's sitting there thinking, "Damn, he's using the cup." So then you keep it running, and then he's going to push it back to him, and he's going to drink it. So they use the coffee cup. This is the one, that's where you get you get. Th- thank God, this was actually pretty well the best of the takes, but because it only happened once, you can't you can't repeat that. It gets artificial. Hey, 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 no, he didn't. He says, he also talks like that very nice black tense text. No, he didn't. No, he didn't. When he's, actually, when he says to him, he's talking, when the guy's in front of him, he, he uses a peculiar phraseology, which is, no, he didn't. Yes, he did. And the guy's sitting right there. You know, I like that. If you listen to his phraseology, he's quite straight. Um, generally, he's just got better clothes on.
1: I don't think there's been anybody since Frank Lucas who has done what he's done. I don't think anybody else has has gone to the source and been a sort of like a, you know, uh, womb-to-tomb importer-dealer that he was. I think this was a
0: one-shot deal. Um, This here is now where they're going to do the deal. Ironically, when it was in many respects the longest scene in the movie on paper, But there's not a lot I can do, and I shouldn't do much. And the trick is also, when you don't need to do much, is make it simple. Because the information is so great, and you've got two great actors. Let them run, and then you do, That's right there, that's a cut you couldn't do 20 years ago. You go bam, and you suddenly jump forward four days, and they've got all the photographs, and Frank Lucas is now turning what we would call state's evidence. It's, he's, now, he's now basically giving information which will get him off because Richie Roberts was now, don't forget, a prosecutor and he decided, having come to close quarters with Frank Lucas, to be his representative of, as a defense attorney and out of that negotiated 75 years down to 15, which I think is a pretty damn good deal considering what he did, what he represented. I'm not sure that something like Borland would have been popular within the police precincts, right? He'll still only get whatever he got at the top in those days was probably less than $40,000. But he'd be a class one detective in charge. And then, but after tax, he's not living very well. So they would rely on backhanders and bribery, corruption, and say, two for me, one for you. Right, and they, they would, you know, generate. I went to cop's houses who were definitely on the take. Um, not for this film, but for an earlier film. I was in the, one of the favoured places, Staten Island. So I went to Staten Island and visited a few cops, and I said to this guy, I want to see what a cop's house is like. I want you to show me, a, and I will never say it, you show me a house where he's on the take, and one that isn't on the take, and the difference is entirely, absolutely, palpably different. Big sofas, and all covered in plastic. Sofas and fake classical paintings with heavily gilded frames and flock wa- wallpaper. I mean, it's like *The Sopranos*. Um, I mean, quite ghastly, but you know, you could feel the money. What I love—the most thing that is very conducive to Frank—at the end, there's two lines at the end where Richie says, "Well done," and claps. And by then, you get a sense that they've become friendly. It's good work, Frank. Right and he does that says well done frank uh you want a drink or something and frank says "Uh, got any holy water and and then and denzel had his laugh his bray right down frank Bray's. he goes (laughs) okay like that and i thought it was great to go out in that that was the way to get out on frank because there is no he's about to do 72 years he's about to spend the rest of his days in prison and he can laugh at his dilemma what do you call that? I don't know. Above all things, you can call him also courageous, right? But that courage—the good qualities—unfortunately are outweighed by one overridingly dreadful bad quality. These people probably know it's like a gambler, you know. They know it's inevitable. The gambler inevitability of losing and gambling is inevitable, right? So the inevitability of getting caught in the back of your mind, when you see that police car suddenly standing outside your house in the morning, you almost nod and agree that, yeah, it came a little sooner than I wanted, but there it is. Oh, this is great, because this went on beyond this. And I think, I won't describe what goes on beyond this, because I think this is, a, in a way, the perfect ending for Frank Lucas. Because the way I read it, and you read this one or two ways, hearing the hip-hop coming up on a passing car, tells you he's now in the 90s but what it tells me is, is he going to think about going back into business again on a phone call? Because the thing that I felt if there was a downside to the character of Frank Lucas at the end, I didn't want to see the old lion go down I wanted, I, because it was, I was so engaged by him that I wanted to see, feel that he would carry on with his own piracy that he would carry on his own piracy so that's a little bit sick but there it is and so that the hip-hop helps to give make you think on those two levels is it just because he's in the 90s or is it is he going to go straight to telephone booth and say hi guys i'm out but i don't get any sense of helplessness on that street that's the way it should end that, that you feel he's strong
1: Richie became a prosecutor, so he tried the case. And now he's a defense attorney. He quit the prosecutor's office actually not that long after this case and uh, became a private defense attorney. He's probably defending some of the same people that he put in jail, (laughs) certainly the same kinds of people. This is Steve Zalian. Thanks for watching.
0: Richie kind of respected Frank and how he conducted himself, right through after post-arrest trials, and he just got to know his client because Richie decided then to become a defender. And by becoming a defender, converted Frank into saying, "Okay, I'll turn. I'd call it state's evidence. I will talk." And because Richie wanted the cops, bent cops didn't give a shit so much about the usual suspects. He wanted the cops who were not playing the game. And there were, I think, I, don't, I wouldn't swear by the number, but I think there was over three, 150 cops, there were 150 arrests, It's a lot. Um, and that, because of that, Frank then didn't do the 70 years, he did 15. In that time, obviously Richie started to kind of, not worry, but kind of vaguely be concerned about Frank's welfare when he came out. Somebody said, gosh, it's a pity to see an old lion afterwards go down. I don't want to see the old lion go down. I want to see, I want to wonder what he's going to do next. And so that's how we, and it was a very good call because it it does just that. You look at him standing there, he's thinking about it. And you wonder what is he going to do? (laughs) It's, it's not depressing, put it that way. I hope you enjoyed listening to me, so I'm going to sign off, and uh, I hope you enjoyed the movie.